Welcome to That Reminds Me of a Story, a podcast dedicated to exploring emerging trends in orality and the communication of the gospel. Our podcast focuses on interviewing practitioners, hearing what is happening in the field of orality, and answering common questions about the orality movement. That Reminds Me of a Story is co-hosted by Grant Lovejoy and yours truly, Don Barger. In each episode, we will host conversations with a wide variety of practitioners to discuss the impacts of working with oral preference learners from many different contexts and perspectives. Well, in today's podcast, Grant and I are going to talk about sort of how we got to where we are in the orality movement, of what's changed over the last 20 to 30 years, and where we see it headed. Maybe to get started, Grant, why don't you share with me how you got started uh, with this orality movement and Bible storying? You know, I had heard about orality during my MDiv and PhD studies because it was part of uh, the history of the interpretation of the New Testament and formed criticism, made a big deal about the orality of the New Testament era. But where it really came to be significant for me as far as ministry goes is when I was teaching a doctor of ministry seminar along with a missions professor, Ebby Smith, and the topic of the seminar was preaching and church growth. And we we're focusing on the relationship with different styles of preaching, different approaches to communication of scripture to foster healthy growth of churches and numerical and spiritual growth. And in that course was a missionary from the International Mission Board. His name was Jim Slack. He was you know, experienced, had probably 25 years or 30 years of experience at that point. And in the seminar, he made some really jarring statements. One of them that I remember was, he said something to the effect that at that point in the early 90s, 60% of the adults in the world would not understand a conventional presentation of the gospel if one were made to them in their own language. That's that's uh, quite a jarring statement. Well, it really was. And I thought, oh, you know, because my assumption at that point was that the real issue in evangelizing the world was simply someone getting there and be able to present the gospel to people in a language they would understand. And what Jim, you know, what he was getting at was that you could do all that and still fail to communicate the gospel. And of course, that is an alarming prospect to think that if you do all that it takes to actually physically get to, you know, a remote people group and you learn their language. And then lo and behold, when you finally get a chance to present the gospel, it doesn't communicate. And so, so that is really alarming. So it's not just language, but it's actually learning style as well. So how they how they would understand information, how they process information. And Jim Slack's point was that at those in those days, most gospel presentations were formulated according to Western culture. They were propositional. They were heavy theological. They were organized according to our own sense of logic or sequence. They were not narrative. They were not story. And that's where he got me intrigued. And, and that mattered to me because um, a, a few months before, I'd really been praying about God's, for God's guidance and how I could invest my education and my energies as a seminary professor for the advancement of God's kingdom. And your, and your when, background was in preaching, right? I mean, you're yeah, in proclamation. Proclamation. And, and so my core concern as a teacher of preaching is how do we help Christian people, pastors, and others understand the Bible and communicate it effectively so that people's lives are changed by being saved and growing in grace until they become ever more Christ-like. So my core interest was the same 
that uh, Jim Slack was talking about. How do people understand the scripture? Yeah. So I don't know what year was this? This was early nineties, 93, I think. Yeah. So my interest in Bible story came as sort of a result, indirect result of your interest in Bible story. So this was 93 or so. Then my interest came probably in 94 when I was a student, an MDiv student at, at Southwestern working in the library. And I saw that you were ordering all of these books that I, I was thinking to myself, why is someone ordering all these books? And there were a lot of books and back then cassette tapes on stories and narrative. And I just was kind of intrigued. And one day I asked your assistant, what is this person requesting all this for? And then you and I had a really long conversation one night in the library, uh, as you kind of explained uh, orality to me. So that was all it took. I was sold. And the rest of my MDiv studies, I always worked in some sort of orality aspect and all of my papers and research that I was able to do. You know, in the providence of God, uh, he had really helped me be prepared for that moment uh, in that seminar with Jim Slack, because as a PhD student, as we studied contemporary preaching in that era, one of the real dominant threads dating back to the late 1960s was preachers and teachers of preaching were grappling with a really decisive turn that took place in American culture in the late 60s and on through the 70s. And that turn was against authority generally and authoritative institutions. And when it came to preaching, there was a strong cultural shift that said, don't tell me what to think. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me how to behave. And so pastors were faced with, okay, what do you do if you know that a lot of the people who sit in your pew come with that attitude that they have imbibed from the culture? So uh, beginning in the early 70s, there had been a handful of preachers and teachers of preaching who were experimenting with, okay, how do we get the message of God heard when you know you're up against that kind of resistance. Yeah, it's very contemporary today. I think we still have that same, maybe even more so in today's church. So instead, you, I'm assuming that what you're moving towards is by telling the story as a narrative or the Bible as a narrative or telling the story, you're letting the scripture speak and then discovery coming through interaction with that, that narrative. Yeah, precisely. And that raised a crisis for me as a doctoral student, if, you know, where does the authority of preaching really lie? And as I studied, thought, prayed, reflected, dialogued with others, I realized, you know, it's not in how loudly the preacher shouts. That's not the genuine, authentic authority of the word. It's not in whether you pound the pulpit. It's not in whether you say the Bible says over and over and over again, that fundamentally at its core, the authority of preaching is the authority of truth. That what you're saying is rooted in the Bible in such a way that what you're saying is true. And it's the truth that really is the key, yeah. not these other cultural factors. Yeah. So the let the scripture speak and let me be much smaller. Over the years, I've listened to a lot of sermons in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different countries. And in, in sometimes I'll, I'll walk away from a sermon thinking, oh my goodness, he just went through 26 different Bible references, most of which were taken out of context and people don't understand the, the bigger story, the meta narrative of scripture, if you will, of what was taking place. And so they pulled a verse here and a verse there and a verse there to say what they wanted it to say, but it wasn't necessarily what scripture, the, the whole of scripture 
says. Yeah, for sure. And as I began to study as a doctoral student, some guys who were trying to grapple with this, the thread running through it was this idea of, you know, telling biblical stories or in other, or, or other stories because they were advocating both uh, biblical and non-biblical stories as crucial for preaching. But you think about in the Bible, you have some notable examples of instances where you had someone who was resistant to the message. You know, David, when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, when he had had her husband killed and Nathan went to confront him, Nathan went with a story. And really David pronounced judgment on the action before he realized he was the culprit. Yeah, he pronounced judgment on, on himself. Right. Whereas if Nathan had gone in attacking David head on, you wonder if David wouldn't have been defensive and you know had a really different response. Likewise, Jesus often used parables with people whom he saw to be resistant to what he had to say. And after the, the story was told, there you know there were times that his disciples came to him and said, "You know, you made them angry. They realized that that was about them." And Jesus said, "Yeah, well, I know that. <laughs> That's kind of the plan." Uh, so what I what I concluded is that really it's okay. If the biblical message comes in a narrative form and it communicates what God intended to communicate through that author, through that narrative section, then we've achieved our goal of being faithful to the word, faithful to the Lord's intent. And uh, so biblical storytelling and the sermonic equivalence of that, to my mind, then it was settled that that's okay. That really the core is, are we communicating scriptural truth in a way that people understand it and then can respond to it? So I... I could see this episode going six or seven hours if I would allow it. So I'm not going to allow it to do that. I would like to shift our thinking because there's a whole lot we could talk about here. I'd like to shift our thinking to sort of, at least in my last 25 years uh, on the field and now uh, in the U.S., of my observations and your observations of how what we were calling Bible storying um, now it's, I, I like to look at it much broader as the orality um, movement or how to communicate effectively. But as we saw early manifestations of storying, uh, and some of the, what Slack has, has mentioned and the stuff that he's written about and Jay O'Terry, how it transitioned from that to what we have today, which is a much broader approach. So maybe we can walk through some of the characteristics of early Bible storytelling uh, in the 90s. I know it goes back a little further than that, but really popularized in the 2000s. Sort of what has happened in this young um, model? So what are some of the trends you've seen happen over the last 25, 30 years? When we uh, in IMB and Southern Baptist circles first encountered kind of the, the uh, precursor to Bible storying, it was through the New Tribes Missions mm -hmm. work with what they called chronological Bible teaching. Right. And so they would you know, move through large sections of Scripture one at a time, and they were teaching from narrative texts, but not necessarily telling the story as a story. It was kind of a, a literate approach to storying, if I remember. So this was the book that I produced to you in the library. So well, here, look, here's Trevor McElwain's Firm Foundations book, and and you very politely explained the. I asked, I think that question was, what's the difference between this and what what we're advocating for? And you kind of explained those differences of being, yes, it's narrative, but it's really an a literate approach to orality that oftentimes uh, was much slower 
And the end result was attempting to introduce literacy, not just introduce, but you really needed to become literate. Yeah. And New Tribes Mission is a fine group. They were committed to Bible translation, church planting, you know, producing a written translation and teaching local people to read that new translation and to be able to teach using their literacy and the written translation. So the whole package uh, approach that they did in a very admirable and honorable one. What happened, though, was that some people from IMB observed that and said that presupposes some things that we couldn't always presuppose. For instance, as an organization, IMB was not committed to uh, literacy work and raising up literacy workers among the local populace and things like that. And so IMB workers at that point said, you know, we see great value in being Bible-based. Obviously, we see the value in moving through the story step by step by step. But they said, we would like to make this something that doesn't require literacy for people to really understand the message and be able to pass it along to others. And so at that point, that the storying really emerges as an alternative to teaching about stories. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I want to clarify, we're not opposed to literacy where I would love, love it if everybody in the world was literate. I would love to have full the whole Bible translated in their language, not just a book here or a book there. But I think in the for our organization's emphasis of what we were doing, we were involved in that from time to time and we helped others who were doing that. But really it, it's a very slow process. Uh, and if you're engaging oral people with literate models, I think Slack's already said, you know, it may not you may miss the mark and you may not get full comprehension. So it's kind of a both and we would love to see all of those things happen, but engaging oral people with oral stories seems to be very fruitful and then maybe even develops a desire for them to learn more and become, I think it's, if you go to someone and say, here, let me teach you to read. There's really nothing written in your language. Uh, maybe a couple of fairy tales and then we're going to get a book of the Bible here and there. It's probably not a lot of motivation to, to read, but if, they understand the stories of the Bible and they want to learn more. And we say, well, these are found in this book. There's, I've just seen it as impetus to spur on a greater desire to translate the Bible. Yeah, no doubt. And in fact, you know, you and I talked about this in an earlier podcast about why not just teach people to read mm. where we've, we've talked through a bunch of these things and affirmed, yeah, literacy is great and we're all for it. I think in those days, IMB just said, this is not our primary calling. Mm -hmm. We serve in a lot of places besides with tribal people. We serve in urban settings and, you know, places just aren't tribal. So whereas New Tribes mission is defined by that calling to that type of uh, ministry setting. Right. IMB had a much more broad understanding of where it was called to go and the variety of people it was called to work with. So I think that actually is one of the changes that I've seen over the last 20, 25 years is that early on uh, in my ministry, particularly I was living and working in a very remote uh, rural people group, not, not super remote, but very rural uh, people. And now, and that's where storing was really focused. We we're focusing on people who were lower literacy rates, um, lower educational opportunities, uh, remote areas, whereas now I see orality, this is the broader spectrum of we've actually seen a lot of benefit of using oral approaches, not just amongst people living in the Amazon or 
in uh, tribal settings and remote villages, but we see orality being used in urban areas and pretty much all over uh, college students. So it, it's, it's kind of broadened. And I don't know that it was ever limited to just those, but there was certainly a perception uh, amongst uh, practitioners of, well, that's really a strategy used for, for these rural peoples. These, this wouldn't, this would never work here. I mean, you and I both have heard people or colleagues say, well, our people are, are very literate. They're very educated. Uh, this, this isn't the strategy for them. Right. That has been a huge shift. Uh, I think to their credit, people like Jim Slack understood from the very beginning that orality was made more than Bible storytelling. Right. If you read any of the literature that was written, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it recognized that oral cultures have music and dance and visual arts and just the relational components. It's, it's way more than storytelling. But for simplicity's sake and for having some place to begin, uh, they and I and others who started trying to introduce orality to people for whom it, at least as a concept, was, was unfamiliar, we started with the simplest, most obvious right. storytelling. What has happened dramatically from then, early 90s till now, is the development of electronic media mm-hmm. and the shifts culturally in the West, especially, so that today, you know, if, if I'm talking with a group of college students and I say, you know, a lot of people really don't enjoy reading and they get most of what shapes their life through non-print means like YouTube videos and podcasts and Instagram and, you know, other forms of social media, they're just like nods. Well, like, well, yeah, sure. Whereas, uh, you know, 25 years ago, those weren't as prevalent and it wasn't therefore as obvious to people that even highly educated people like university students are highly oral. Yeah, I think we recognize that cultures change. I, I just want to throw out a statistic, Grant, that some uh, people are, are working with Ukrainian refugees who are moving into Poland and uh, rolled out a, this is a totally different type of oral engagement, but because we can talk about social media, we need to have a whole podcast on social media. But just as an example, in 24 hours, just over 24 hours, 2.1 million Ukrainians saw an ad that we were running on Facebook uh, for, uh, there was some prayer or some uh, scripture portion video. And of those, over 200,000 people watched that video. And as we talk about orality, uh, that's the kind of difference that we're talking about. It's certainly not a tribal people. Um, those have led to over 5,000 messages coming in from people who are engaging that media. And so orality, the orality movement, we're, we're not just talking about reading a book, uh, being different, being non-oral, but we're talking about this orality of engaging people with video and for, with song and different ways to interact with people. And those are, those are different than in the past where it would be a track or it would be read this book, work through a lesson. This is more of a interacting with people using audio visual. Yeah, definitely. So, so just changes in culture have made it a lot more obvious to the average Western Christianer. Uh, Western Christian, that the shift has really been toward orality. Uh, in the early 
workshops that I had a hand in helping to lead, where we were introducing Western missionaries to chronological Bible storying. We spent half of a week long, five day event. We yeah. spent half the time, roughly, trying to convince people that orality was a phenomenon, that it was influential, and that it was so influential that we ought to change how we approached Christian missions because of it. And, and so literally from all day Monday, all day Tuesday, and usually up through noon on Wednesday, the, the whole point of the presentation was just to convince the missionaries who came to the conference that this was an issue and that it mattered. And only on Wednesday afternoon, we started talking about, okay, then what do we do? Yeah. Now, after one hour on Monday, people say, okay, so what do we do? Yeah. Or, or even, you know, I remember one evaluation that we received in a, in a training we led and we had we'd only spent, I don't know, 20 minutes or so on this topic. And the evaluation was don't spend so much time explaining the orality. We understand it. We, you don't have to convince us. And I was thinking, I remember the, when that evaluation came back, I thought, wow, I mean, this shift has happened rapidly in the last 10 years from it felt like half the people were, it was just constantly questioning whether or not it was a legitimate engagement strategy or, or discipleship or leadership development strategy to where now I think most people don't need that convincing. They understand it. That's who they are. Yeah. The, the battle on that front has been won. Yes. You know, just by and large, there, there, are, there are exceptions. Sure. I would say though, that it came at a price in that, um, Early on, we were so explaining it in terms of people who cannot, I mean, I think the, the easiest defense of orality was, well, but these people, if they can't read, or then obviously you need to use an oral method. And I think if I were to be able to go back and change things, I would probably, I would still say that, but I would also emphasize it's not just because of the lack of literacy, but it is because this is how people learn. This is how they engage information. And so, I mean, you and I are, are doing these, these um, visits with people around the world and probably at around 200 interviews now. And we are hearing over and over and over again, uh, our nationals that we're working with, people from those cultures, highly educated PhD students saying, yeah, uh, I much prefer to hear a story than read. So. I think I would go back and we can't go back in time, but if I could, that's what I would change. I would, I would sort of emphasize the fact that this is not just for people living in the jungles. This is useful for a broad uh, group of people. Yeah, for sure. It was at, at a considerable cost. Um, just oral strategies generally got um, fixed in many people's minds as that's the method for the illiterate. That's the method for the jungle. That's the method for this narrow slice of humanity. But for all the rest of us, it's something else. And that was a very unfortunate consequence. It really was. So I would like to get into maybe some of the changes of what changes have we seen in the emphasis of how stories are told or crafted? Yeah, it, one of the biggest changes has been in the early going, stories were prepared by the Western missionary Christian and a language that suited them and then typically then translated from a written version of the story to another written version of the story 
and then people tried to learn to tell the story in the local language based on the written version that had been translated from another language. Yeah. So let me let me just kind of because I've done this uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s. So there was a I want to tell a Bible story. Uh, I crafted that story ever so well in English, and then I translated it to Spanish, and then I would have someone record that story in Spanish. And it was a very rigid process. Looking back, and I've actually gone back and listened to some of those stories. I thought, ooh, that's not a great story. It doesn't even sound like a story. And you can tell that it's being read. And so there wasn't any process of internalizing that story at all. It was just, it was, and also it's a translation of a crafted story. So it wasn't even, and it was me crafting it in my Western world, my Western eyes. So when I hear those stories now, I'm going, wow, that is not a great story. Yeah. And what happened frequently is someone would take the story that you had crafted in English or Spanish, take it across to another continent, a completely different cultural setting, and hand that story to a local person who's bilingual and say, would you translate that into whatever the local language was? And so then you get a version of that story, let's say in Africa or in South Asia, where you had crafted it for Latin America, and it's just gone boom, boom in two short steps to uh, another context altogether. And it really is not, it was not prepared with that cultural setting in mind at all. Yeah. So I think that this is the greatest improvement iteration of storying that I've seen in, in my time overseas is moving from that model. And those people don't own those stories. I love to use that. You know, you, we want you to own these stories. They're God's stories. You can't change the, the story but we want you to own the process of getting that story into your language. And so today the shift has gone from a Westerner creating that story in an, usually in English and then going into a, another language and then being translated by a national into another language to our desire. I, I would say the best practice of this is to work with mother tongue crafters to help them craft those link those stories in their language from the very beginning. And then my role becomes more of a facilitator to help make sure that those stories are clear, accurate, natural, retellable. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that has been the most single significant shift in since 2005, really, is when that really became a part of our uh, ethos little by little. It's just real, realizing how much uh, a difference this makes. And I would say with that, also really working with mother tongue speakers to produce the story so that it is a told phenomenon. It's, it's aimed to be a performance, really. I know performance is a term that troubles some people because it sounds as though it's mere entertainment, but I mean, it's meant to be told live to other people as its primary uh, form of distribution. And, and that makes a huge difference. If you say, I want this to be an event, a happening, to be an experience that engages people, then you do some things stylistically that are different than if you're producing it primarily for print. Yeah. So where my stories were basically a, a print story, but it was more of a story that you would find in print rather than a story that was being told. And if you come from a, if you've been around storytelling cultures, 
I, I'm reminded living in the Dominican Republic and would be living, I mean, up really late at night playing dominoes. And it you couldn't go a minute or two without someone, okay, that reminds me of a story. And they'll tell a story of something that happened. And they're just great storytellers. And that's how they naturally communicate information. So why would we not want them communicating the gospel in the same way that they would tell other stories. We want them to, just like they were there and they saw the cheese fall off the truck and everybody come and grab the cheese. That's one of the stories I remember. We want them to tell the Bible stories in the same way, just like like it was my story. Here's this story of David and what's happened in his life. And we want to be able to tell that story. And so if you've been around oral people groups or people groups who love to tell stories, we don't want them to tell stories that are uh, wooden, and don't sound as if they were real stories. Yeah, I remember out about our friends, uh, Terry and Vicki Lassiter in Suriname, working with uh, a group who really um, mm-hmm. were enslaved people who had been brought from Africa, escaped from their enslavers, and lived back in the jungle for 300 years, largely isolated. But they reached out to them, and over a period of time, uh, found a man and prepared him to tell biblical stories in the local language. They were going to make recordings of them. He's a very capable guy. I think he spoke about six languages, obviously very bright. So they got him all prepared. The day came, they set everything up for him to tell the stories. And as he launched into telling the first story, he didn't get far before he stopped. And he said, I can't do this. Right. And as they got into explained, yeah. he said, well, you know, in our culture, he said, that you have to have an audience and the audience responds to what I as a storyteller say. So I'll say a few things and then they'll respond back with, you know, yeah. whatever the cultural thing yeah. is, a mm-hmm, or they'll echo back the last phrase or something. He said, I, I can't tell this story without an audience. And so they had to round up some local people who understood the culture and who could play that role. And then they were able to go back and begin again with recording. But now he had an audience to echo back to him to do their appropriate part. And only then could the story really take place. And that, that's kind of a extreme example. But it was one of the things that was really powerful to influence in my thinking. We're talking here about an event, not just words that get broadcast by one person, but it's an event that is shared. So I will contemporize that today as I was helping a pastor in Alabama uh, during COVID. And one of the challenges that he said to me early on was, you know, I've really never realized how difficult it is to preach to a bunch of pews. And he said, I, I mean, I did not realize the, I just thought I'd stand up there and I would preach a sermon. And he said, it was so awkward to not have the, people in there and and that's preaching proclamation you're not proclaiming to a bunch of pews you're proclaiming to people and that that feedback that he received it's very different i know than than the Suriname example but i think it is something that our people here probably have experienced uh, in the last couple years of having to speak having to preach to an empty sanctuary or an empty group of people our empty room. Uh, it's very difficult to do that at the same way that the same manner you would do it when the room is filled with people giving feedback. Yeah. I, I've sometimes compared it to the difference between making a studio recording of music 
and then putting on a concert oh, yeah. with an audience and making a recording of the live performance. Now, yeah. each has their place and each can sell albums or discs or, you know, streaming individual cuts uh, as whatever the technology is. But there is a whole completely different experience of having, you know, music that was created in studio versus music that was performed live and recorded in a live performance. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time for this episode, but I want to go ahead and signal what our next uh, episode is going to be about. And our next episode, we're going to talk about these changes we've seen in the orality movement and some of the steps in the process, some of the things we've discovered, uh, some funny stories, maybe sad stories that we've experienced uh, as we've gone and, and checked some of the stories that we've told. So that'll be in our next episode. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please share it with others. We would really appreciate your helping us get the word out about That Reminds Me of a Story. 